Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. <laughs> you are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Hello and welcome to It's Alive Alive Podcast. This is a true crime paranormal interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I am your host, the man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the bruiser Bronson, Dr. HR Smokenstein, THC, or you can just call me Josh for short. And with me as always is my very own Scream Queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the brightest Smokenstein, the India horror, the expert, the guts and gore, the gorgeous, the sexy Amy Rose. Amy, where was I last time? We were at the point where you dropped a huge cliffhanger and ended the episode. Sydney's brother. Oh, yeah. Today, we're going to look at the mystery of Maureen Prescott, Rena Reynolds, and Roman Bridger. We're also going to look at the abusive and corrupt Hollywood studio system, which in a way was the catalyst and fuel for the fire that was the Ghostface Killer. It's really driven home in the Marilyn Monroe biopic, Blonde. That scene where she walks in for a movie audition and before she can open the script, she's bent over a table taking from some disgusting movie producer scumbag. Yeah, at the time it was almost like they saw it as a right they had. Whether you could act or not was irrelevant. As long as you look good and you were willing to spread your legs for the right people, then you could be a star. Now you say at the time like it was a long time ago. Like this was seen as perfectly acceptable and expected behavior up until very, very recently. And I'm sure if you dug deep enough, there's still plenty of scumbags in the industry taking advantage of young, naive girls who are out there trying to chase their dreams. The level of damage this behavior has caused throughout the age of the cinema is unfathomable. I can barely say that word, unfathomable. Mm. <laughs> but, but today's story should put it into perspective a little bit. As we see a young, optimistic, fresh-faced young girl get eaten alive by the Hollywood system and in effect set the wheels in motion for the ghost-faced massacres that have plagued so many innocent people for the past 28 years. Roman Bridger was born 3rd of February of 1970 and was the illegitimate son of the former unknown Hollywood actress going by the stage name of Rena Reynolds. So he's Neil's son. I mean, if this Rena lady is his mom and he's Sydney's brother, then logically Neil is his dad. Was he trying to take revenge on Neil for not giving him the family life he gave to Maureen and Sydney? Close, but switch out Maureen for Neil. I'm confused. Rena Reynolds was the stage name. Her real name was Maureen Prescott. Um, Maureen lived in Woodsboro all her life, except from 1969 to 1971 when she didn't. You see, Maureen was young once too, and just like any other teenager, she had dreams. Maureen wanted to be a famous actress just like her idols, Audrey Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, and Marilyn Monroe before her. So as soon as she came of age, she packed her bags and headed for Hollywood, scoring a meeting with the legendary horror producer John Milton almost immediately. Shit, Maureen, fair play. I've been on loads of auditions and 
they barely acknowledge I'm in the room. Like, this girl moves to Hollywood and straight away she's rubbing elbows with major producers. Good going, all right. But unfortunately for Maureen, fame and success come at a price. Oh, is this another skin crawler moment? Yep. This is Hollywood in the late 60s, early 70s, where female success was based more on their skills between the sheets than it was about your acting ability. Stuff like this didn't just start to happen at Harvey Weinstein. It was a long-running practice that every female star had to endure for their fame. So just like her idols, Audrey Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, and Marilyn Monroe before her, Maureen knew sooner or later she was going to have to take one for the team. Yuck. But unfortunately for Maureen, she was about to get a lot more than she bargained for. Do you realize how often stories about Maureen Prescott start with, unfortunately for Maureen, (laughs) this woman can't catch a break in life. It's like she's cursed. Yeah, and you're about to get a pretty nasty example of that curse right now. Like I said, it's old Hollywood. And as a female in that world, you are you accept that certain things have to be done to get to where you want to be. And Maureen was no different. And she had prepared herself for that fact. But what Maureen expected and what Maureen got were two very different things. Not long after meeting with John Milton, Maureen was invited to attend a party at his Bel Air mansion under the pretense that she was going to be networking with other Hollywood bigwigs. When she got there, though, what she discovered was a room full of old Hollywood producers. All men with no other female guest in sight. I've said it once and I'll say it again. Yuck. Once Maureen realized what was going on, she tried to leave. But John Milton took her aside and told her if she wanted to be big, if she wanted the big roles, then she had to be okay with doing it. And I quote, the dirty work. So Maureen went back into the party and after she got enough booze in her system, the dirty old men went to work. Gang raping Maureen over the course of a few hours, leaving Maureen a physical and emotional wreck. This shit is absolutely disgusting. And to think that this kind of behavior went so long unpunished is an absolute disgrace. Like, look at the damage it caused to this woman. Look at the road this trauma led her down. You have to know that this night is what led her promiscuous behavior going forward. Like, this led to her affairs, which then led to her murder and the murder of countless more. All because these perverted rich old men who had their bank accounts could have any bimbo they wanted, couldn't be professional and keep their dicks in their pants. Like, castration would be too good for them. I say do it like Salem Witch Trials and burn the perks at the stake. Or castration followed by burning. Yeah, I love it. Perfect. <laughs> the worst part of all this is the nasty old men didn't even see her as worthy enough of protection and not long after the rape, Maureen discovered she was pregnant with Roman. So she didn't even get to do any movies. She just goes to Hollywood, gets fucked, gets pregnant and that's it. Not exactly. Maureen did get a few jobs from John Milton. She starred in a few of his horror B movies such, with credits such as Amazombies, Space Psychos, The Creature from the San Andreas Falls, and she also starred in three of John's plays, The War on Earth, Young Women, and I Want to Scream. Why does John Milton sound so familiar to all this? Like, as soon as you mentioned him, I instantly connected him to Ghostface. Because John Milton was the main producer behind the first three Stab movies. How does he produce the third movie? Uh, at this stage, there's only been two killing sprees. And from the little I read about him, I know he was the last victim of Romans, putting him in the story of Stab 3 rather than the production of it. The studio wanted to cash in on the success of the first two movies and make the story a trilogy. This was to be the first Stab movie made with no source material. The making of this movie would eventually become the source material for the eventual Stab 3 that was released, but originally it was going to be 100% fiction. 
I also might add that we have all this information from Gail's book, Stabbed in the Back, The Real Sunshine Store, Sunrise Story, and Scream Tree, the documentary made, movie made by Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson, as the follow-up to their other two documentaries following the Ghostface phenomenon. Anyway, back to Sunrise Studios, and Maureen, now heavily pregnant, was alone and out of work. Hollywood had no room for pregnant teens and less room for single mothers, so the parts had dried up, and on top of this, Maureen was depressed, making her her difficult to work with anyway. Maureen had this thing growing inside her that she didn't want, and that feeling wasn't going away. She had no maternal feeling growing inside her. In fact, she dreaded the day she had to lay eyes on the monster that was coming that was going to come out of her. I know that sounds harsh, but that's the way she saw him. Roman was the personification of the degradation and humiliation she had been put through in John Milton's mansion. He would be a walking, talking reminder of the pain and suffering she had went through, and now it seems she went through for nothing. Maureen could see the writing on the wall. She knew her chance at Sunrise Studio was spent, and she didn't care, because the whole experience had soured her on her dreams, and now all Maureen wanted to do was get this kid out of her, give it away, and get back to Woodsboro, where she could leave this all behind and pretend like it never happened. And that's exactly what she did. So after giving birth to Roman, she gave him up for adoption, moving back to Woodsboro where she met Neil, got married and started a family. And for 25 years, that's the way it stayed. Roman out of sight and out of mind. But just like many kids who have been put up for adoption, Roman got curious to his origins and started to do some research. Research that would lead him to the Prescott home and a confrontation with Maureen that he had not anticipated. Oh shit, she rejected him. That sucks. Like, not a reason to kill people, but it's still shitty for him. Yeah. When confronted, Maureen with little expression said, you're Rena's child and Rena's dead. Before slamming the door shut right in Roman's face. Now, here is the point in the story where we have two narratives to choose from. And it is a hotly debated topic online. Mm. According to Roman, the rejection he received from his birth mother birth mother flicked a switch in his head for murderous revenge. He claims that after the encounter with Maureen, he was determined to destroy the perfect little family she had built. And once he had done that, he would kill her and leave Rena exactly as Nancy said she was, dead and buried, forgotten in the small town of Woodsboro. Roman claims that he stalked Maureen for a few weeks, looking for a weakness or an angle to her life that he could exploit or take advantage of. It was through this surveillance that he spied Maureen taking off for his steamy afternoon hookups with Hank and Cotton. And through further surveillance of the men, he figured out that the Loomis's family were his ideal targets. He then claims he was the man to call Nancy using the trademark Ghostface voice box, telling her about all of Hank's extramarital misdeeds. Just like we heard about in episode one, so far all this lines up with the story we know. But here's where things take a turn. Roman claims that he made contact with Billy, that he was the one to tell Billy everything, that he showed Billy video footage of Hank meeting up with Maureen, and that this was the reason for his mother's sudden absence. He then claims he mentored Billy, training him in the ways of the serial killer, helping him plan the attacks and even how to get away with it, setting up the Ghostface movie narrative, even going so far as to advise Billy to find an accomplice he could use as a patsy if everything went wrong. So Stu was never Billy's partner. He was more like an insurance policy. According to Roman, yes. You don't believe that, do you? 
No. You see, the evidence just isn't there to support it. Roman is a virtual unknown in the story until he takes on the Ghostface title for himself. When investigations were done to check out the validity of his claims, it was found that Roman was nowhere near Woodsboro in 1996. And looking at phone records of Billy and Roman, there isn't any known communication between the two. Investigators took all this very seriously, considering that over the space of four years, five connected individuals went on three killing sprees. They needed to know, was there anyone left, anyone else connected to the killers who could take a stab at being Ghostface next? So what do you think really happened? I think Roman did stalk Maureen, and he did want to ruin her life. He was obviously capable of murder, so maybe that was the goal at first, and maybe he lost his nerve. I mean, at this point, Roman hadn't killed anyone yet, at least not that we know of. Yeah. I think when he saw Maureen cheating on Neil, he thought it would be enough to ruin Maureen's home life. Uh. So he rang Nancy, hoping she would snap and reveal everything to everyone. He didn't anticipate that Nancy would just decide to bail from the situation. I think at that point, he went back to Hollywood to lick his wounds and maybe work out a new plan. And again, we know this man is capable of murder. So when he eventually lost his killer virginity in L.A., he would have most certainly been back to finally finish off Maureen. But if you snooze, you lose. And before Roman could work up the courage to kill, Billy beat him to the punch. And for the next few years, Roman watched as the Loomis saga played out in in Woodsboro, Windsor, enjoying the collapse of the Prescott family and the torture of his little sister during the process so he's just sitting around LA at this point doing nothing oh shit sorry I just assumed everyone knew who Roman Bridger was Roman Bridger grew up around Sunrise Studios maybe feeling guilty for his past actions John Milton kept Roman close after his adoption providing opportunities to Roman in the film business mentoring him to in a degree so much so that there was always a rumor around the studio lot that Roman was John's illegitimate son what's the odds here one in five one in ten how many guys could have been there that night before Maureen? Not a clue. I couldn't find info on that anywhere. But yeah, there's a fair chance he could be Roman's biological father. Mm. So Roman grew up around film and aspired to be a famous movie maker and director, which is another reason I don't think he had much to do with the first two sprees. Mm. I think that when he saw Sydney escape the second round of attacks, Roman decided to get it done right. He'd have to do it himself. But Roman is a storyteller, and I truly believe the master puppet's murderer was a narrative he had built up in his head. I believe in his head all these killings were just live-action script writing, and he needed this story to make him what Stu and Mickey wanted to be before him, the big, bad, iconic psycho killer. It's almost like his backup plan. If he gets away with everything, he'll frame Sidney and achieve what his predecessors couldn't. He'll go on to huge fame and be the biggest name in cinema, and if he gets caught, He has the distinction of being a murder mastermind, the killer cult leader who directed his minions to murder 14 people before going on to take eight himself. He'll feature in books, movies, movies and studies. His name never forgotten and his legacy will well and truly be cemented in time. He pulled it off too. To a degree, it's accepted he had some hand in the first massacre, whether that was him snitching on Hank and setting the ball rolling or that he was the guy behind Billy showing him the ways from the shadows. What about Nancy and Mickey? All Nancy's doing. All evidence shows Roman had no idea this was happening. People who were close to Roman at the time of the Windsor attack say he was glued to the news all that weekend and the week going forward. Friends say he seemed almost surprise excited. Like he couldn't believe what was happening but seemed overjoyed by it. And no one thought this was weird at the time. 
they, they, they did, but Roman's an artsy movie geek. They just figured he was excited because of the cinema link. The killer is inspired by the film to kill, and now the copycat killers who strike on opening night of the film about the killers who kill because of films that you know show people killing. Okay, yeah. It was weird, but he wasn't hurting anyone, so it was just kind of ignored. Yeah. So, like I said, Roman worked at Sunrise Studio, mainly writing and directing music music videos, with one or two credits for episodes of Dawson's Creek too. I fucking hated Dawson's yeah, Creek. We were talking about like this Dawson's last Creek. night. In Ireland, you had like in the nineties, we had like three channels for most of the nineties. Eventually, we got a fourth. Yeah, after and one a while. of those channels was an all Irish, all Irish speaking as well. So, if you didn't speak Irish fluently, there we're was no point in watching that channel. Mm. And if you did speak Irish fluently and you were a child, there was no point watching that channel because it was boring as fuck because hmm. I could speak the language and I never watched it. Except Nobody for one on time, the one time when they had Soap Park on it dubbed in Irish. Oh, that okay. was mental. <laughs> they used to have their Dungeons and Dragons game on as well. Yeah, but that we were talking about uh, Dawson's Creek mm-hmm. was literally, like, as a child, when you saw Dawson's Creek, I was like, oh, oh balls. shit. And it was always followed by fucking Felicity and Party of fucking Five. It was yeah, just a trilogy of boredom mm-hmm. if you were a fucking kid. And there was nothing. If you changed over to RT1, you were getting the news. Mm-hmm. If you went to the other one, it was the Irish-speaking channel and it would be, you know, some fucking farmer speaking Irish. And I love the Irish language, but when you're a kid, you just want... English. Yeah. So, and I mean, and that was for most of, like, Irish people, unless you had money, you had three channels. Yeah. Sky was, was expensive. We used to get it like intermittently. We, mm. we, we, when there was an offer on, we'd have it. And then once they put up the price, it would be again. gone again for mm. a while. Anyway, back to Roman. He was hungry for more success and had been begging John Milton for... Fo- oh, yeah. Fuck you, Roman, for making fucking Dawson Creek's episode. That's where I was getting at. <laughs> he was hungry for more success and he had been begging John Milton for funding for a rom-com he had in mind to make. Milton agreed to fund the movie on one condition. First, Roman would have to write and direct Stab Tree, the first of the series to be 100% fiction with no source material, at least not yet. Roman protested this decision in public, but behind closed doors, he couldn't believe his luck. Mm. Now was his chance to make history and finally put the final cut in his long-running revenge plot to annihilate the Prescott family. This time, instead of murders being adapted into movie, his movie will be adapted to real life. Roman wrote his script for a stab tree, not with the plans to make it on a soundstage, but instead as a blueprint to his own killing spree. And unlike the ghost face who killed before him, he will be a success. And by the time it was all said and done, he would finally kill Sydney, along with her reputation, letting her die a monster, destroyed by the life choices of her sexually depraved whore mother. Shit. <laughs> Roman knew his opening scene had to make a splash. He knew to solidify himself as number one mastermind ghostface killer, he would have to outdo the murders of both Casey Becker and Maureen Evans before him. So he set his eyes on something new. Instead of attacking a random newbie, why not go after a survivor right from the start? The ghostface killings now have a legacy, and with a legacy comes legacy survivors. And why stop there? Why not go right back to the start of the story? Someone big with a presence. Someone who will be missed, not just by a few, but by a nation of loyal fans. 
It was with that Roman set his crosshairs on Cotton Weary, currently riding high with his ratings and talk show fame. On February 1st in the year 2000, Cotton Weary and his girlfriend Christine Hamilton were found butchered in their luxury Hollywood apartment. Although there was clearly a real struggle put up on Cotton's part, no evidence or DNA linking Roman to the crime were found. All the killer left behind was a photo of a young girl, maybe 18, 19 years old, standing on a Sunrise studio lot sometime in the 70s. This woman was Rena Reynolds, and later identified to police by Gail Weathers as a young Maureen Prescott. I assume it didn't take Gail long to get into the middle of all the fun. No, it didn't take long for the three survivors to band back together, but to be honest, it was by design. Roman knew Gail would naturally make her way to the crime scene. It's just in her nature. But he knew that wouldn't be enough to draw Sydney in. So he hired Dewey Riley as a consultant on the set of the new Stab movie, drawing him in close to the action too. He also needed Dewey close because if Sydney didn't come to LA of her own accord, he would have to go find her. And he knew only two people had her number and her current location, them being Neil Prescott. Her dad, so that makes sense. And Dewey. Dewey being the goof that he was known to be from time to time eventually did leave his phone unattended, giving Roman a chance to get the number and call Sydney, taunting her, making her think he was close and coming to get her. This coupled with the pictures left behind in the crime scene of her mother forced Sydney back into the game. But a tough in Sydney had lived through this twice before. She had been hardened by loss and she wasn't going to stand idly by as more people were picked off around her. She was done being the victim and she was ready to take on Roman. So she went straight to LA and checked in with LAPD homicide detective Mark Kincaid, a man she would later go on to marry and have three children with. A little happy ending in the middle of all the murder. At least we know Sydney eventually got the life she deserved. So with everyone in place, Roman went into berserker mode, killing his first three victims all in the same day. First on the chopping block was B-list actress Sarah Darling, who was cast as the opening celebrity death for Stab Tree. The big boobed hot blonde to get the guys into the cinema on opening weekend. She was found stabbed and impaled on a piece of broken glass that was stuck in the frame of a broken window in the Sunrise Studio for Laugh. This murder was instantly linked to Cotton's death due to another picture of Maureen being left with the body. And with that, production of Stab Tree was shut down immediately by the studio. Yeah, makes sense. Bound to get bad press, especially if they kept going and more actors died. That night, the remaining Stab Tree actors had themselves a little rap party at the house of Gailweather's actress, Jennifer Jolie. It was here Roman would leave two more bodies. First, Stephen Stone, the bodyguard of Jennifer Jolie, was found stabbed outside the front door of the house. From the blood trail, it appeared he had been attacked in a trailer sitting outside the back of the property and stumbled to the front in search of assistance. Heavy stuff. It's clear from his next move that Roman was losing patience with the process and was dying to get to the part where he frames and kills Sydney. While the actors all drank in the house, Roman cut the power, leaving them in darkness before turning on the gas line leading into the home. Most of the people inside got out before the tragedy struck, but one actor was not so lucky. The fax machine had been printing new pages to the Stab Tree script, something all the actors were dying to see because they'd surmised, with Sarah Darling being killed first and her being the opening movie kill, that the killer might go after the actors in the order of the script. 
But with the constant script changes and rewrites, they couldn't be sure which version of the script the killer had. Tom Prince couldn't sit by and wait, and when he saw the script began to print in front of him, he couldn't just leave it behind. So as his colleagues huddled together for safety in the backyard, Tom read aloud for them each page as it came out, still warm from the fax machine, using the light coming from the flame on his lighter. He read as the script read that the next victim will be the one who smells the gas. And with that line, the house exploded into flames. Tom Prince with it as he unwittingly set himself aflame with the lighter he'd used to read his death warrant from. Not quite done yet. Roman made one more attempt at murder, chasing down Gale only to have Dewey scare him off with a few bullets to the vest. Pity these fucks always remember the body armor. Always go for the head. Now, while all this was going on, John Milton was planning a little party to celebrate Roman's 30th birthday to be held at his Bel Air mansion. Despite five people being killed over the past two days. Great time to celebrate. Yep. So with the remaining cast invited along with Dewey and Gale, the potential victims made their way to Bel Air and to Roman's final showdown. Please tell me Sydney had a sense to stay away from all this. Yeah, she tried. She was back at the police station with Kincaid. Problem was, Sydney knew, as usual, the killer would be someone close to her and currently in her life in some way. She started to question Kincaid and his motives. Then, when she got a call from Roman teasing what he planned to do to Galen Dewey, she kind of had her hand forced and made her way to the mansion without the knowledge of the LAPD or any backup bar, a small gun hidden in her ankle. But before Sydney got there, Roman had a few more bodies to dispose of. Once Roman's intimate party began at Milton's mansion, so too did his murder mystery game. In attendance were Angelina Tyler, Tyson Fox, Jennifer Jolie, Gail Weathers and Dewey Riley, along with John Milton himself. Before Sydney made it to the mansion, Roman had managed to stab and kill Tyson Fox and Jennifer Jolie, along with seriously wounding Angelina Tyler, who bravely survived, barely survived her injuries. He also had managed to capture and subdue Dewey Gale and Milton, needing them all alive for his final act with Sydney. He wanted to make her watch as he killed Dewey and Gale, and Milton was needed to confirm the Rena Reynolds story to Sydney. Holy shit, these killers really put thought into these plans. Everything set out to cause the main target the most amount of misery before they eventually kill her, on top of the fact that they also have to lay groundwork with everything they do to keep eyes off them. And make it plausible that one of the Prescotts have went crazy and on a murderous rampage. So many plates spinning in the air at the same time. Like, I'd fall apart trying to keep it all running smoothly. Revenge is a hell of a motivator. Yeah. In the meantime, Detective Kincaid had noticed Sydney's absence. And it didn't take a genius to realize where she had gone. So when Sydney arrived at the mansion, it's safe to say he wasn't very far behind her. In her book, Out of Darkness, Sydney describes the whole scene. She says upon arrival, Roman rang her. He was watching her from nearby and instructed her to use a nearby metal detector wand, similar to the ones used by security in, air, in an airport, to sweep her entire body. Then, once unarmed, she could enter the mansion. From here, she scrambled around through the debris left from the earlier killings, trying to find Gail and Dewey to free them before Roman could get to her. But after some back and forth fighting and chasing, including a tense moment with Detective Kincaid, who had entered the mansion without the knowledge of Sydney, Sydney found herself locked in a home cinema room with Roman and John Milton. It was then Roman pulled off his mask and filled Sydney in on his motive. 
He told her how the room they stood in was the room used in the gangbang rape of their mother. The room he was conceived in and the catalyst for his anger and violent tendencies. He did all this while killing Milton right in front of Sydney. Along with revealing his first encounter with Maureen and his involvement in Billy and Stu's killings, he ranted like a child about how the jealousy he felt towards Sydney was his reason for acting out the way he had. How she had stolen his childhood and family and this was his revenge. She would die in his hands and he would frame her, saying that at the prospect of yet another movie being made based on her life drove her over the edge, causing her to go on a killing spree, killing the cast and crew that were making it happen. He would be the sole survivor and the hero of the story and the ghost face killings would finally be put to an end permanently. Wouldn't that be nice? Sorry, what? Oh shit, the killing's ending, not Roman winning, right? Fuck that whiny baby. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Tired of hearing another killer blaming their circumstances of their life on her, Sydney berates Roman, who gets angered enough to attack her, leading to a fight. Roman manages to gain the upper hand, but a distraction by Kincaid allows Sydney to grab his knife. He, however, finds Kincaid's gun and shoots her, knocking her down. He shoots her in the chest to be certain of killing her. But Dewey and Gale, on the verge of breaking into the room, distracts him for a moment. And when he turns around, Sydney is gone. Oh, the tables have turned, motherfucker. Roman incensed tore the room apart, trying to find her just as Billy had done four years earlier in Woodsboro. And just like then, she burst out of nowhere, taking her attacker by surprise. Stabbing Roman several times in the back before finally plunging the knife deep into his heart. She then knelt down and held her brother's hand as he died, almost a small reconciliation at the last minute between the troubled siblings. And with that, the Prescott Loomis revenge story is at an end. And Ghostface is back at rest, waiting patiently for his next host to hear his vengeful cry. He would stay that way for over a decade, despite a few failed attempts to lure him back into public consciousness. From here on, the revenge takes a backseat to the promise of fame. Sydney had set precedent the fame and fortune could be found amongst the blood, something that would eventually hit close to home and return us to Woodsboro once again in our next Ghostface episode, which you will hear in maybe a few months. Oh, major super cliffhanger. But since this is the reboot and we're remaking it a couple of weeks beforehand, you actually get to hear it like next week. (laughs) Major cliffhanger, not really. (laughs) What a story and what an episode. Three killers, 17 dead, 14 victims. It's all so much. And we're not done yet. When we eventually return to Woodsboro, we will meet the next generation of Ghostface killers and Jill Roberts and Charlie Walker, along with a new crazy stab-obsessed family in the curses, not to mention all the failed copycats around the world will be doing Ghostface stories for another while, yes. If you like what you hear, go check out our Patreon for more true crime and horror shows with exclusive shows going up there every week. Subs only $5 a month. And don't forget to check out our mini-sodes dropping Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday on Spotify and all other platforms. But for this week, we're done. We gotta go. But don't worry because we'll be right back. I'm Dr. HR Smokestein THC. And I'm Amy Rose getting ready to take you back in time next week with a bloody Victorian slasher case. Sounds awesome. Can't wait. It's Alive Alive. All the guts and gore written under the guilt. See you next week. Same Alive Alive time. Same Horrorverse channel. Love you. Bye bye. Hey lady, I love you. Bye bye.